Uh, my family uh, really have always enjoyed reading the story, Guess How Much I Love You. I don't know how many of you know the story, but for those of you that don't, I'll give you a brief summary rather than read the book, even though it's not that long. I could really have brought it with me, I suppose. But it's the story about two hares, Big Nut Brown Hare and his son, Little Nut Brown Hare. And in the book, they have kind of a competition with Little Nut Brown Hare telling his father, Big Nut Brown Hare, how much he loves him. And every time Little Nut Brown Hare says how much he loves his dad, for example, I love you as high as I can stretch, his father, Big Nut Brown Hare, always can stretch higher or jump higher or do anything else bigger and better than Little Nut Brown Hare. And then at the end of the book, as Little Nut Brown Hare is going to sleep, He finally thinks he's trumped his old dad. He says, I love you all the way to the moon. And then as little nut brown hair starts going to sleep, his dad whispers in his ear, I love you all the way to the moon and back. It's a lovely story. And if you haven't got it, I'd recommend you buy the book. But it's a good illustration in a a kind of a way of what we're going to look at tonight in Mark chapter 14. If that question was asked between us and our Heavenly Father, I wonder what the answer would be. Of course, we know that we can never love God more than he loves us. With God, the Bible tells us that he shows us what love is. In in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, we read, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We don't have to guess how much God loves us. He loves us all the way to the cross where he stretched out his arms and he died for us. And God doesn't really even have to guess how much you love him. He knows exactly how much we love him. But just imagine that the question was asked from you to God. And you said, guess how much I love you. What would God say the answer was? Because he would know. He does know. Do you love God more than anything else? Or are there other things that you cherish and that you treasure more than you treasure Jesus? And that's where we're going to look in this passage tonight. We see a woman who treasures Jesus extravagantly. And we see some examples of various people that treasure other things more than they love Jesus. But then at the end of the the passage tonight, we come down and we look at the Lord's table, where Jesus shows us how much he loves us, all the way to the cross. So it begins with a woman who does love Jesus. And she seems to love him with her earthly treasures. And the first uh, point here is that we too should love Jesus with all of our earthly treasures, with everything that we have got. So when we read the passage, we saw that Jesus is in Bethany. And he seems to be relaxing with friends in the house of Simon the leper. And a woman comes with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now let's stop here and, and, put, and picture this, because it helps us to understand. So an alabaster jar 
was a jar made of pure, uh, not pure, sorry, it was made of smooth marble. And it was used to retain the fragrance of this perfume. And this perfume was expensive. We read in verse 5 that it was probably worth a year's wages. The average wage in the UK apparently is around 26, 27,000. I think that's about average. Now, I don't own any cologne. That's worth anywhere near that. This, but this was not your cheap pound shop thing you go in and spray. Uh, it, this was expensive stuff. A year's wages for a perfume. It was made of pure nard. Now, nard is apparently a plant from India where it was extracted from. So this was exotic. It was from afar, which would have probably uh, added to what the, uh, made, was the re- part of the reason why it was so expensive. And it was pure nard. It wasn't diluted with water. This was pure, which meant it would have lasted a long time, which was a good job if it was worth a year's wages. Now, my aftershave at the moment lasts ages because I'm not using it so much because I'm not shaving. But this woman's aftershave would last a long time, not because she didn't use it, but because she only needed a small drop because it was pure. It was potent. And she would use it uh, when she was going, into, going out with company and just a drop and it would fragrance her and uh, the room probably would smell of it as well. So imagine the shock with what she does next. It says she broke the jar and poured perfume on his head in verse 3 at the end there. She broke the jar. So this alabaster jar, which was retaining the fragrance, she broke it. And she poured all of it on Jesus' head. She rendered the jar useless and a year's worth of cologne, not it wasn't cologne, it was perfume, but all on Jesus. Imagine the shock. Now, I hate waste. If I have a piece of bread in my house that's got a bit of mould on it, I'll take the mould off and toast it and think it's fine. I don't put the heating on unless two jumpers are still making it cold. So I can understand the shock here when this woman pours perfume over Jesus' head. And this is what they said. Uh, If you look at verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now we know at the beginning it was, it was Passover time and it was customary to give gifts to the poor. And reckless extravagance in this way would have been frowned upon, especially at Passover time. They saw this as a waste Now, some of them, no doubt, did care for the poor. We know that wasn't Judas's motive, as we'll see. So did they have a point? Is giving that much to Jesus a waste? Is it a waste? Well, look at what Jesus says next in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Was this a waste? No, 
said Jesus. It was a beautiful thing. It was an expression of faith. She knew what Jesus was worth. She knew he was worth everything. This action was prompted by love for Jesus, which is always a beautiful thing. Now, perhaps um, as, a, as a man, I'm not used to using that word beautiful so much, which isn't a good thing. But it's true that whenever we serve Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. Jesus thinks it's beautiful when we serve him in any way. But they have a point, don't they? It could have been used for the poor. It could have been. So at first, this sounds harsh, what Jesus says. He says, well, I'm with you, they're with you always. I'm not going to be with you always, so you shouldn't use it for the poor, you should use it for me. But he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, when he says, the poor you will always have with you. So he's quoting a scripture passage which commends generosity to the poor. So why is Jesus doing this? Well, we know Jesus cares for the poor. We know Jesus was poor. But helping the poor should be flowing from a worship of Jesus and not an end in itself. They valued the poor more than they valued Jesus. It's good and it's right that we are generous to the poor. But we have that flowing from first loving Jesus. Their priorities were the wrong way round. Whereas the woman's priority was Jesus. She gave it all to Jesus. He was not going to be around much longer. He was going to die. And after he was risen, he was going to ascend. This was an act of love done for a man who was going to die. We don't know whether she knew that he was going to die or not. But either way, in the plan of God, this anointing was preparation for Jesus' burial. There was a purpose behind the extravagance. In verse 8, it says that it was preparation for his burial. And the reason that is was because Jesus was going to die as a criminal. He wasn't a criminal, but he died as a criminal. And criminals, after they die, when they're crucified, don't get anointed. So Jesus' anointing, which was a Jewish custom for the dead, was right here. The oil, uh, the, sorry, the perfume she used would have been something that you would anoint a king with, of course, which Jesus was. She gave everything, this, 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 all of this perfume, to Jesus as an act of love for a dying man who was going to be her saviour. Her burial, his burial was another prediction, by the way, of his death. How can you give too much to the God who died for you? How can you see something as a waste when it is given to Jesus? Uh, this year, I've, I read the biography of uh, C.T. Studd, who some of you may have heard of. Now, C.T. Studd had some bad points uh, in his biography, but one thing that I loved and I thought was amazing was his zeal for the Lord. His love for Jesus was amazing. This was a guy that was often told, you're too much, you're too zealous, 
He was a professional cricketer, first class. He played in the very first Ashes Test. In fact, if you know the little urn, his name is on there with his brothers. But he gave that up because he felt called to go to China as a missionary. And when he was there, his father died, and his father was very wealthy. And C.T. Studd inherited a fortune worth millions today, and he gave every penny of that fortune away. Some of it went to uh, D.L. Moody in Chicago. Some of it went uh, to uh, Booth in India with the Salvation Army. Some of it went to um, uh, the orphans in Bristol. Uh, Muller, sorry, George Muller. He gave it all away to various places that were serving Jesus. And he spent his life, whole life, serving Christ. Gave everything that could possibly be given by a man to the Lord Jesus. And people kept on telling him, you're too much. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. And this is what C.T. Studd said. He said, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. That was the attitude of C.T. Studd. He gave all his fortune away. He gave up his cricketing career to serve Jesus. He said, no sacrifice. Nothing is too great for me to give for Jesus. I wonder, do people ever tell you you're wasting your life on Jesus? What a great testimony that would be, wouldn't it? If the world is going to say something about you, let it be you're wasting your life on Jesus. Oh, that the world would say that to us. That they would see us saying and showing, Jesus, I love you this much. Here's my year's wages. Take it. Lord, here's my time. Here's my Sundays and Thursdays and whatever other days. Here here they are, Lord. Take them. Lord, here's my reputation when I tell others about Jesus. Take it. Sorry. Take, take my reputation. I don't care. I'm going to give it all because I love you, Jesus. Lord, you want me to suffer in this way? I love you, Jesus. I will suffer for you. I will do what you ask me to do. Even though it's hard, I will love you this much. Can you see the attitude of this woman? She loved him that much. She gave that perfume to him. Others saw it as a waste. But Jesus didn't. It's a bit like with the widow's mite. It's a similar kind of thing. Different scale in terms of uh, earthly value. But they both gave what they had for Jesus. He says she gave what she could in verse 8. What can be done for Christ, whether it's a widow's mite or a year's worth of perfume, what can be done for Christ should be done for Christ out of an attitude of love. It's not the amount that's important. It's the attitude behind it. Give what you can out of extravagant love for Jesus and let people tell you that you're wasting your life on Jesus. What a great testimony to have. If I had that written on my grave, if he wasted his life for Christ, then I'd be, I'd be happy. What a testimony that would be. But as well as the woman, we see her love for Jesus... In this passage, we see some warnings for us of some treasures we can love above Jesus. And that's the second thing we see here. Don't love earthly treasures above Jesus. And we see three different groups here, or different people, that love other things more than Jesus. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see the Sanhedrin, 
who love power more than Jesus. The Sanhedrin love power more than Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now remember, the Sanhedrin are the ruling council that contain the Pharisees, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And all through chapter 12, we saw them trying to catch Jesus out with various questions about different things. But now, they've decided... It's enough is enough. We've got to kill this guy. He's got to go. But the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were just two days away. And these were the main two feasts of the Jews. But really, they were one long week of celebration. And they celebrated the exodus from Egypt that we see in the book of Exodus. And now in Jerusalem, the population of the city was around 50,000 people. But at this time, when this feast was on, the, the, the population would expand with the crowds to hundreds of thousands. And the Sanhedrin were in charge of the celebrations. They didn't want this Passover festival messed up. They wanted it to go smoothly. They wanted it to go well. They would look bad if it didn't. And they loved their power. So they didn't want to arrest him during the festival because they knew that Jesus had great followers. People loved what he had to say. They loved the miracles. They they were following him. Crowds went everywhere. If they were to arrest him, there would be a riot and it would ruin the Passover festival. These people, they were scared of the crowds because they loved their power and Jesus was a threat. And so they wanted him dead. I wonder, how do you feel about Jesus having power over your life? How do you feel about Jesus being in complete control of everything that goes on in your life? I think it's one of the biggest barriers to faith, isn't it? When people have to come to terms with the fact that they are accountable to an all-powerful, almighty, holy, sovereign God. People don't like to hear that, do they? And they might not try and kill God, because obviously that's impossible, but they are openly hostile often, like these Pharisees were. Perhaps we see it today in the evangelical atheists, don't we? Or in governments who try to suppress Christianity. Or churches uh, that get, you know, people burn down churches or murder Christians, trying to shut out God. But notice something here. God is in complete control. He is the one with the real power. You see, many people up to this point have tried to kill Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, when he was born, King Herod tried to kill him. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, we read of the earlier thoughts of the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. When Jesus went to Nazareth, his own people tried to throw him over a cliff. But none of these times did Jesus die. When did Jesus die? At the exact time the Pharisees had planned for him not to die. At the Passover. He died at 3pm on the Friday. The exact time that these Pharisees said, not then. Who is in control here? Who is the one with real power? 
It is God. God is in complete power, complete control. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says about his own life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. God is the one who is in control. He is the one who has the power. You cannot subvert the plan of God. These Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, but they could only do it when God allowed them at the exact time that God wanted, and it was when they had planned not to. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who uh, God is asking you, of, asking something of you, and you're ignoring him, thinking, I'm going to go my own plan. Submit to God's plan. Perhaps there's someone here who's trying to deal with their problems in their own power. Seek God's power, submitting to God's plan. Perhaps there's someone here who is rejecting God altogether, thinking, I want nothing to do with this God. I'm in control of my own life. Understand that God is the one with power and authority and control. Submit to his plan. Now, the second group of people we see here are in verse 4. Some of those present. And they loved moderation in worship more than Jesus. They were saying to one another after this uh, perfume was poured on Jesus, why this waste of perfume? Now, apart from Judas, who we'll see in a moment, they were not necessarily enemies of Jesus. And although we know that Judas was part of this group, most of them were not outright enemies. They followed Jesus, spending time with him in Bethany. But here, they thought that this gift was just too much. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given to the poor. And their view of the poor, as we saw, well, it was commendable, but their view of Jesus was not. Jesus is worthy of everything we have. So often, just like we give 10% of our tithes, we give 10% of our lives. But God asks for all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength. He asks for everything that we've got. And it's easy in our Christian lives to just plod along, plod our way into heaven, and be content with just showing up to church each week. It's easy to put on a veneer of respectability and everything's okay. It's easy uh, to get into a a habit of not studying the scriptures, not growing in our faith. Perhaps we used to do that, but we've stopped. It's easy to get into habits of of no longer praying and just just getting by. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I I just don't want to give too much of my, my, my time, my whatever it is. And as we see others as as zealous for Christ, we can say, oh, they're they're just too much. They're too intense. I can't cope with that zealousness. Is that how you view some people? Do you see them and think, oh, they're just just too much. Just too much. Are you all in for Jesus or not? Are you willing to give it everything? Or are you just happy to plod along moderately, Loving the fact that you're just you're, you're going to get into heaven, but I can't give it all. These people loved moderation of worship more than they loved Jesus, and I think this is a big danger for all of us. 
It's easy to get into bad habits quickly, isn't it? It's a very easy thing to do. But the third display of not loving Jesus is from Judas Iscariot. He loved money more than he loved Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. It's interesting how Mark begins this uh, bit with the word then. As if it's the, it's the waste of perfume and Jesus' response that was the final straw for Judas. We know from John chapter 12 and verse 6 that Judas was a thief and he had been taking money from the disciples' collection. Mark also um, highlights the fact that this perfume was worth a year's wages. Can you imagine what Judas would have got if that perfume was sold? That money would not be going to the poor. A lot of it would be going into Judas' pocket. He was the treasurer. And Mark highlights the fact that when the chief priests heard this, they promised to give Judas what? Money. Money. Because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. So much so that he was willing to betray Jesus for money. And the baseness, the, the, the awfulness of this betrayal is highlighted by the fact that Judas, uh, Judas was one of the twelve. And Mark uh, uses that phrase twice in this passage. He was one of the twelve. That means he knew Jesus closely. He had been involved in the ministry. He had seen the, the miracles and the teaching. Jesus was Judas's pastor. It makes the betrayal all the worse. It was a friend of Jesus who should have known better. He had advantages that were just amazing. He was with Jesus for the whole of his ministry. He was with him that time. And yet, he betrayed him. He was involved in the ministry, but he wasn't changed. It was all superficial, and it was really to line his own pockets. It's just awful. Don't be surprised at how low you can get when you love something more than you love Jesus. Now, the betrayal of Jesus gets worse when we understand it, because the betrayal of Jesus wasn't just that Judas was identifying Jesus. These chief priests and elders and scribes, they they knew who Jesus was. They'd been arguing with him all week. This betrayal was something more. You see, a person in the Roman law could not be brought to trial without an indictment officially being lodged against them, signed by a credible witness who agreed to testify against them in court. So unless someone went and agreed they were going to go to court against this person and they were a credible witness, then they couldn't arrest him. Judas was one of the twelve. He was as credible as you can get. And furthermore, since Jesus had done nothing wrong, Judas would have agreed to lie about something Jesus had done that he hadn't even been told about yet, probably. How low can you get? But don't be surprised at how low you can get when you love something more than Jesus. 
What would you sell Jesus out for? It may not be the 30 pieces of silver that that Judas uh, got, but it may be 30 minutes of sex, if you love that more than you love Jesus. And it can spiral out of control, just like Judas did. It may be your reputation at work. It may be a drunken evening that can get out of hand. It may even be for money, and you'll be surprised at what you would do for it if you love it more than you love Jesus. But with all of these things, there will never be enough. In fact, there is misery. When you have, when you have been with Jesus, and you know the love of Jesus, you've seen his glory through his word, and you know how wonderful he is, it can, it can only lead to misery when you love something else more. Because really you know that Jesus is so much better. That's why Christians that compromise just end up so miserable. There's no one more miserable, is there? Someone that's tasted the goodness of God and yet goes for something else. It's just miserable. And Judas ended up committing suicide. His money never satisfied him and he was ruined by guilt. None of the things you can sell Jesus out for are as satisfying as Jesus actually is. None of the things you can sell Jesus out for are as satisfying as Jesus actually is. And it said Judas looked for an opportunity to betray him, to hand him over. You know, don't look for opportunities to sell out Jesus. Don't go searching for those things that we've just mentioned. In fact, avoid them and the damage they can cause to you, to the church, and to the honour of his name. Now, some of you may be thinking, I've done this kind of stuff. Does this mean that, like Judas, I've had it? Well, the answer is no, because we see that there can be forgiveness because Jesus loves you in an amazing way. The woman loved Jesus extravagantly, and we can love him too, but only because he first loved us with all of himself. We see, finally that Jesus loves you with all of his life. He gave everything. And we see this love for us in the Last Supper, where Jesus institutes a new Passover celebration to remember what he was about to do for us. So the Passover was, and still is, the annual celebration of the time when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, where they were in slavery, into the Promised Land. And if you remember in Egypt, there was the, the ten plagues, and the last of these plagues was the death of the firstborn. And if the, uh, if the person had the blood of a spotless sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their home, the angel of death would pass over their house. And that's what's remembered at Passover every year. Even today, the Jews still celebrate that. So Jesus' disciples asked him where he wanted to go to make preparations for Passover. This was the wine, the bread, the lamb, and the bitter herbs that they would use. Jesus then gives instructions to two disciples, which are a bit cryptic. It's a little bit like you can compare it to um, uh, the, um, the triumphal entry when Jesus was entering Jerusalem. Do you remember when they, they told him to get the donkey? And it was all a bit cryptic, wasn't it? Do you remember that? Well, here it's a similar kind of thing. 
Why the intrigue? I don't know for certain why it was so, uh, why it was like this, but no doubt, in some way, it was to stop Judas knowing. Jesus would be arrested at his time, no one else's. And a man carrying a water jar was unusual. Normally, it was the women that carried the water jars. So the man doing it was unusual, so it was easy to spot. And then there was the prearranged guest room, which was upstairs and all ready to be used. Jesus has planned this out. The whole of his journey to the cross, the whole of uh, the, the, these last days, of his, these last moments of his life, were planned perfectly so that he could die at the perfect time. God has the whole thing arranged so your salvation can be secured, just as God planned it. So let's pick up again at verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. We had people over for lunch this afternoon. Imagine if I'm sitting around the table and I say this. One of you at this table is going to betray me. It's not going to be the most joyful meal. Now, Passover was supposed to be a time of great joy. They're celebrating the exodus. And Jesus is around the table and says, one of you is going to betray me. And it says, as you would imagine, the disciples were saddened by this. But a sad event had to take place before the true joy could come. And they, asked each other, they all asked each other, surely not me. One by one they said this, no doubt including Judas. And Jesus then says those words again, it is one of the twelve, he replied. Repeating from verse 10 the awful, disgusting fact that one of Jesus' close friends was going to betray him. And then Jesus says something I want us to meditate on just for a moment. Look at the end of verse 20. Who would betray Jesus? He says, one who is eating with me, or one who dips in the bread in the bowl with me, which is, I think, um, if, yeah, at the beginning of verse 20, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. I want us to just think about those words, because the dipping of bread was a custom where meat was wrapped in bread and dipped in a sauce. The bread was unleavened bread, known as the bread of affliction, because the Israelites uh, didn't have time to put yeast in the bread when they escaped from Egypt. It was called the bread of affliction as they remembered their time there. The meat was the lamb, which was the sacrifice that was made as the substitute The bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of slavery that was wrapped in it as well. And the dip was a fruit mixture that would turn kind of a reddish color, which would remind them of the bricks that they had to build in slavery. And this bread, wrapped with with the lamb inside and, and all these other things, represented salvation. It represented deliverance from slavery. And in, when each person around the table received the bread that was dipped, they were acknowledging their sin and their need of a deliverer, of a Messiah. And so all dipped the bread. So none of the disciples knew who it was. 
You can imagine this, this being true, because if Jesus is saying it's the one who dips the bread, and only Judas does it, he wouldn't have been able to escape, would he? They would have all realised who it was and, and probably you know, killed him or something. But they all dip the bread. Jesus is saying it's one of you, one who dips the bread. And he says dips the bread because it's one who is offered this bread, this, this uh, meat in the bread, this, this offer of deliverance. Jesus holds out this symbol of salvation to Judas. He offers Judas forgiveness. Think of the amazing grace here. Judas, one of the twelve who agreed to lie in a testimony against Jesus, who was stealing from Jesus the whole time he was with him. And Jesus offers the bread. Perhaps some of you were thinking earlier when we talked about Judas that you've betrayed him too. And you're thinking, oh, I've done, I'm, I'm too bad. I've done too much. No, no. Jesus is offering you forgiveness. He's holding it out for you to take it. There's never no way back for you. Take the offer of forgiveness. But Judas betrayed Jesus. He went out and did what he did. And some of you may be asking a question at this point. Why didn't Jesus stop him? Well, look at verse 21 and we provide, we're provided with the answer. Why didn't he stop him? It says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. This had been written about before Jesus or Judas had been born. The way that Jesus would die, the timing of his death, yes, even this betrayal was written about in the Old Testament in various places. Jesus knew this was part of the plan of God. So, perhaps some of you are asking another question. Does Judas then take any responsibility? Well, yes, look at the next part of that same verse. In verse 21, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Is God sovereign over this? Yes. Is Judas responsible for what he did? Yes. Do I understand how this all works together? Not really. But it is true. It is what the Bible says. But what we have to remember is that God... Always remember, God is, is so far above us. His sovereign plan and purposes transcend time itself. And we need to do as the Bible tells us to do. We must always remember the Bible gives us responsibilities under God to obey. And we must do them. We must do them. Yes, God is in control, but we are responsible to do what the Bible says we should do. So here and now, I can say to you from the scriptures, if you feel like you've betrayed Jesus, the Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So I say to you, here is the offer of forgiveness that Jesus is offering you and I urge you to take that offer of forgiveness. Whatever you've done, however bad you feel you've got, Jesus offers you 
forgiveness. Now, in order that we might be forgiven, Jesus became the Passover lamb, the substitute that paid for our sin. And we're going to, in a moment, have the Lord's table that reminds us of that. So we're going to go into the next part of the message um, at the table. But before we come around the table, we're going to sing um, the first two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. After we've sung the first two verses, we'll come around the Lord's table together and we'll remember how much Jesus loves us all the way to the cross. So let's think about that now as we sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. As he transitions from what's a Passover supper to the Lord's table. So we'll take our time a little bit as we look at what Jesus did at the table and what it means for what he did on the cross. Now when we have the Lord's table, we have the bread first and then the cup. And at the Passover meal, there are actually four cups that are drunk that represent four promises from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. And let me read that to you. I'll put it up on the screen uh, so you can see the verse or the two verses, and you can see in there highlighted, hopefully, it's a bit, maybe not the clearest, but I apologise, the four uh, promises there. Therefore I say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God." So there are four promises, and the four cups represent those four promises. And verse 18 and verse 22 both begin with the Passover underway. They start with while they were, and it's while they were eating or reclining, while they were at the Passover, it was underway. So Mark is not recording everything that is happening at the meal. He's recording what Jesus initiates in the Lord's Supper. And the meal was in a particular order. And I'll put the points up one at a time on the screen, but we're going to go through quite quickly. And if you want the slide afterwards, come and ask me and I can send it to you if you find it helpful. But first, uh, there was a prayer of thanks. And it was followed uh, by the first cup, which was a cup of wine. And it remembered the promise of God bringing out uh, the Israelites from the burden of of Egypt, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That was the first promise. So that was what this first cup was. And after that cup, there was a ceremonial and an actual washing of hands. And it cleaned the hands they ate with, and it symbolized um, a need for cleansing and a need for holiness. That was there. And then the, after that, this was followed by the eating of bitter herbs. I think it's parsley, so if you've ever eaten that on its own, it's not the nicest of things to, to eat. Um, I don't know why they put it on food and stuff, you know, but they do. But that's what they would eat on its own, and uh, th- that, was, that was what they did next. And then there was what was actually called the breaking of bread. And on the table lay three circles of unleavened bread. And at this point, the middle one was taken and it was eaten. And it reminded them of the bread of affliction that they ate in Egypt. So that was where this, uh, that, at this point, was called the breaking of bread. But it's still not at the point here where we're at the Lord's table. Next, they would tell 
the story of the Passover. The youngest person would ask the head of the house to tell the story. And the head of the house would tell the story of the Exodus and what they were celebrating. And then they would sing. And throughout the Passover meal, they were singing what's called the Halal Psalms, uh, Psalms 113 uh, through to 118. And they would sing the first two after this part. Then the second cup would be drunk. The second cup, remembering the second promise, I will rid you of their bondage, which had been explained in the story that they had just told. And then they would eat the meal of the lamb, the bread, and the herbs dipped in the paste made from fruit and nuts. And from, from my reading, all this happened before verse 22, because the dipping of bread in the bowl was when Judas was with them in verse 20. So they ate the meal and, uh, 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 with the lamb and, and all that kind of thing. After the meal, the hands would be washed again and the remainder of the bread eaten. And it's at this point, when they're eating the rest of the bread, that we come to verses 22 and 23. Now, before we partake of the Lord's table ourselves, just to say that around the table, there were the disciples. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, following him as your king then you are welcome to join us as we partake of the Lord's table. If you are not a believer in Jesus, then please stay and watch what happens and how we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross and remember that he did that so he could offer forgiveness to you. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. While they were eating, so while they were having this meal, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. So while they were eating, so this was during the meal, as they were eating the remainder of the bread, Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And at this point, he changed the meal from a remembrance of the bread of affliction to a remembrance of his body that was afflicted. He was to be afflicted in our place for our sins. So he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is no longer a remembrance of the bread of affliction, this is my body, my body that is given for you. Okay? So at this point, we're going to have the bread together. But before we take the bread, uh, perhaps if Steve can uh, pray for us, and then we will eat of it together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this meal, Lord, as we partake of it. Lord, we thank you that it gives us a chance to just stop and remember exactly what Jesus did on the Lord's Supper, in his Supper, Lord. And also remind us, as we've been reminded tonight, how much you love us. Lord, and as we considered this morning about your great grace for us, Lord, how you've chosen us, and how we are special to you, despite the fact that often we don't show a great deal of love towards you, Lord, that you are a forgiving and gracious God. 
So Lord, as we take this bread, we do remember that your body was beaten and killed for us, Lord, so that we might have eternal life and be seen clean and righteous in front of the Heavenly Father. Amen. This is my body, so let's eat together. Well, in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, that's very often used at communion, Uh, Paul tells us that Jesus took the cup after supper. And this would fit in with the order of Passover. After all the bread had been eaten, the third of those four cups was taken, reminding how uh, God would redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. And this is a reminder of redemption. Jesus, his arms were outstretched, weren't they? For our redemption, for our salvation. And this is the cup, this third one, that Jesus makes his own and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in the Old Testament, we remember that there are many covenants made with his, God made with his people. There was Noah, Abraham, and Moses, for example, and they were always sealed with a blood sacrifice. And all these promises that God made to all these people were fulfilled in Jesus. But also in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, we read of a new covenant, a new one that God was going to bring about. And that covenant promise ends with forgiveness of wickedness and God remembering our sins no more. And it was sealed with the blood of Jesus, with his outstretched arm. His body was afflicted in our place so we could be free from slavery to sin to a new life in Christ. And Jesus was the Passover lamb whose blood enables death to pass over us. It seals our salvation, his blood that was shed. And all through the Old Testament, those animal sacrifices, that blood was continually shed, wasn't it? And the promises of God have always been in operation. Those sacrifices were looking forward to this sacrifice, this once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross as he shed his blood. And this one sacrifice was the one that ended all others when Jesus said, it is finished. So with this in mind, let's give thanks for the cup, the cup that enables us to be redeemed. And before we partake, Alan is going to give thanks for the cup. Father, as we consider your love, the love that you, uh, Lord, showed us, Lord Jesus, the love that you demonstrated on the cross, we can scarce take it in, Lord, how great is that love for us. We have to say with the hymn writer, Jesus, what did you see in me that you have dealt so lovingly?
how we praise you, Lord Jesus. Lord, that horror of sin that would condemn us forever, you were willing to take that punishment upon yourself and take it all the way to the cross and cry triumphantly, it is finished. Lord, we thank you that you eagerly desired to eat that Passover with your disciples. And you eagerly desire to drink anew the new wine uh, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, with your redeemed uh, children. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the shedding of your blood, Lord, for us. How great the love that you have shown upon us, you have poured upon us, Lord, that we should be called your children through what you have done. And we give you thanks in your precious name. Amen. Let's drink together. Now, I did say that at the Passover, uh, there were four cups, but Jesus says something interesting in verse 25. He says, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now the fourth cup, remember the promise, I will take you to, be, to me for a people, and I will be your God. And in part, this is fulfilled now. We are the people of God, and God is our God. But we know that there is a longing for that day when we will be physically with God, face to face. And Jesus didn't have that fourth cup, it appears here, He says he will drink it again in the kingdom of God at a future time when we'll all be together as his disciples, drinking with Jesus, our Lord and King. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we look forward to that time till he comes. And the final verse says that they sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. This hymn would have been the last of those psalms that they sung at Passover. And they went out to the Mount of Olives where his time was about to come, where he shows us, this is how much I love you. So we're going to finish with the last two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last uh, verse of that song sums up well our response to Jesus. It says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Are you going to give that to the God who loves you so much? So let's stand and we'll close with that song.